Welcome to the Casual Journey Podcast. So I got I mean, a few questions because, Gavin, I did not know you were Superman. You all over the place doing stuff, my God. But <laughs> Thank you, man. The first thing I was curious, because the way I think most people found you, at least personally for me, is when you did the, you know, the Theodore Roosevelt stand-up and everything. So I just got to ask, one, I got to salute you because that was some balls right there. Secondly, what made you say, this ain't going to happen on my watch? Oh, well, thanks, man. And, you know, it was a culmination of a lot of things. Uh, you know, that was kind of in the beginning of the country. Just really, it was just a mess. You know, you had the coronavirus, you had the rioting, the statues. And it was just like the city was a mess. And people were just uh, fed up. So, you know, we, we rallied around the statue because it was like a, it was like a physical thing that you could literally meet at. And it's, it's easy to point to and it's easy to stand next to. Yeah. Um, but I think it was more symbolic of a lot of other things, just just the, the general direction of things were going in 2020, political, you know, pensions rising and, and all the stuff going on between the left and the right. And, uh, you know, it was a good common ground. I mean, at the end of the day, the guy was a progressive. I mean, he was still a Republican. Uh, he was kind of a populist, but, you know, a lot of people like him. He's a very popular U.S. president and uh, they were still going after him. So it was kind of like, all right, look, if you can't stand for Teddy, you can't stand for anything. So yes. we made our stand, got way more press, way more attention. Everything just kind of went went viral, blew up. No one thought it was going to be that crazy, but it was. And it showed that there is this massive kind of silent majority out there that's sort of sick of what's happening and wants to uh, to push back. So happy to be a part of it. Because I, I was seeing it from afar. I was always wondering just like, what is tearing down a statue supposed to do? Because if anything, exactly. you're wasting people's time. You're wasting tax dollars. I'm like, if, you, if you're so discouraged, you hate it that much, just spend like $100 and put a plaque there and say, read it, and this was the person. And you have some of these people, like, in Chicago, you see them, they're, like, they're like get cranes, and, like, pulling the thing down. I saw one of them, and it fell on a person's head. You see the video? Yeah, it's, you said it right. It's just a distraction, because, you know, they, they don't want to tackle real issues. They don't want to tackle what's, what's really going on in this country, so they want us to, you know, be divided and fighting over statues, fighting over history. And, look, we said it there. We said history isn't pretty. Yeah. History is an ugly thing. You know, that's why we have history to learn yes. from it. There's no – the second and you start you can't end because every person in history has their their skeletons in their closets they all have their issues you know what was acceptable 400 years ago is certainly not acceptable today no one's right. saying that but you know you could still admire you know someone from four or five hundred years ago who did things that were good even yeah. though they lived at a time and place where they did a lot of things that were not good that's the part of you know just having some nuance having some understanding of history not every statue means that everything about that person was great yes. in, in the case of this statue it was built there because he made the museum he founded the museum <laughs> and that's all it was about and you know he's writing on their, their biggest gripe their biggest gripe with the statue it's so stupid was that he's on a horse and because he's on a horse he's taller than the two figures flanking him, which is kind of stupid because it's an equestrian statue. Yes. So obviously if you're gonna be on a horse, you're gonna be taller, but the people next to him are literally standing up tall and proud. They're not depicted negatively. They're like they're like buff, they're like ripped, and they're just next to him, just standing. There's literally nothing negative about it. It just so happens that they're not white. So if you have people in a statue that aren't white, now we have to tear it down even though they're standing up tall and proud doing their yes. own thing, it doesn't really make any sense. And it was meant to represent the old world and the new world because it's a, it's a natural history museum and he was an outdoorsman. So yep. it was meant to represent the two worlds coming together. Here's the natural history from, from Africa. Here's the natural history from uh, the American plains. And that's all it was, but that's all thrown out the window. They're just saying white guy on horse, bad. We have to get rid of it. 
y'all got nothing else going on with y'all lives. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be me here, but just like if if uh, if the highlight of your day is going to tear tear down a statue, you need to go get a hobby or something. Go 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 start a knitting club. <laughs> and the, the thing that tripped me out, you see, they were like putting blood all over George Washington. They they, yeah. they put some stuff on Abraham Lincoln statue. I'm like, the dude literally signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Yep. The, uh, yeah, the Emancipation Statue in D.C., there was the other abolitionist statue. They, like, didn't even, like, read it. And they were saying, oh, the abolitionist statue in D.C. Because the slave in it is in the process of ripping his chain. It's in motion. It's actually, like, pretty cool because it's hard to, you know, artistically, it's hard to depict motion in a statue. So you see this guy, like, breaking his chains and in the process of getting up. And they're like, oh, my God, he has chains on him, so we have to take it down. It's like, no, you idiots. He's ripping the chains. He's starting to stand up. That's, like, the whole... That's the whole story they're trying to tell, but they don't want to talk about that. And you said it right. They got no problems. That's the, that's the thing. They're, they're finding problems. They can't actually focus on things that matter anymore. They have to create issues because, and a lot of this is, I mean, I'll be honest with you. First of all, we had no protesters that showed up because no one really, this is all manufactured. So it's that's all one. media. It's big all media. media. All big media. All like kind of virtue signaling from like the board of directors, whatever it is. And then two, a lot of it is just really, it's upper middle class white people who have it's, it's literally like we the people that there the was if anyone showed up it was literally the spoiled kids of like you know like r- rich families who just have nothing going on and they want to show how great they are and they want to show up it's like look at me like look at how much i care like i'm one of you like we're we're good people it's like come on you're just phony you're just phony that's all it is it's a combination of virtue singling out i think people think they're greater than they are because yeah. you got people they're talking about we got to tear these statues down like if you were even one-tenth of these people who made these statues, America would be so much better. But people don't want, people, people don't want to do self-introspection because that hurts. It hurts to know that oh, you're yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why when, every time you say anything that, that destroys their, like, concept of reality, they get triggered. Like, if you tell them, like, you can't tell people, you know, they're fat anymore. You can't say, like, oh, you're wrong. You can't say, you can't debate anyone because if you present anything to them that's contrary to what they've been, like, you know, cemented in their head to believe they just shudder and they they lose their they lose their minds so it's like that's that's the whole triggering cancel culture you know snowflakes all that stuff that gets like kind of cliche but it's true it's because you get these people who are like psychologic you know committed to one viewpoint and they've never ever been exposed to anything else because they get it from the media they get it from you know culture they get it from everything they're watching and listening to and they never hear a counterpoint and then when they do hear it they they just like everything is like oh my god like my reality no longer exists going to defense mechanism they have to fight everything off It's, it's just a shame the biggest thing that to me is that the mere presence because i think a lot of these if you really think about it i don't think not many people have that many ideas of their own i think a lot of it starts with the media because you got to think about it, a whole lot of people, they can't do the necessary research and the prep time to learn everything about the topic or the issue. Right. So you're really just taking it, whatever Fox or seeing whatever the big media says. So you got to think about that. It's almost like a trickle down effect. It comes from the media, then it gets reinforced through social media. Then their friend group is probably thinks the exact same as them. And also, you got to think about it, when people go you know, check out these news sites, they're not going to change their opinion. They're there right. to reinforce their beliefs. Exactly. So, so if you keep doing this constant cycle of reinforcing, and then you wonder why you can never have good conversation with the other side at all. Because you're so, I guess you say intellectually distanced from them, really. Because you never hear anything different. You only hear your, what you believe and what you think. And you're, you're right. It's, it's also a lot of just people are just, we have so much information in this day and age. You could literally take two seconds to search something 
on Google, Wikipedia, whatever, and you will have more knowledge at your fingertips than anyone else in history. But people have become so intellectually lazy that they do what you just said. They just go to their preferred source of, you know, I, I'm not even going to say news, I'm going to say propaganda, yeah. <laughs> and they get someone to feed them what they want to hear, what they already believe, and they're not looking for the background, they're not looking for the details, they're not looking for the nuance, they're not trying to, they're not trying to come to their own conclusion, they just want to be told what to think because they've put themselves in a certain team, and it's just stupid because, like, there's no excuse anymore, like, you know, 50 years ago, not even that long ago, like, if you wanted to find half the information, like, someone like me and you would ever need to look up on Google, you would yeah. have to go down to the library, you have to take out, like, five different books, it'd be a whole process. There is no reason why, for to use the example we were talking about earlier, people were attacking abolitionist statues because you could literally go on Look your phone up. and Google the guy in front of you and be like, oh, okay, he literally died fighting the Confederacy. Oh, okay. But they're, they don't even want to do that. And honestly, that's, that's, I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that they do know. I think they do know some of these people like for example say on the statues some of these statues represent people that were on the right side of history but they don't care because at the end of the day they want to destroy history so i think i think about half the people or i don't know the percentages but there's a good chunk of the people who are just misguided and then there's a core kind of really radical bunch that that know better that know what these things are about but they just want to wipe out all of history because when history is gone it's like kind of like brave new world it's like 1984 you could just build everything you want on top of it that's what they did in communist china that's what they did with the jacobins in france that's what they did in nazi germany soviet union because if you have no past you have no future you have no memory you have no knowledge and you could just be controlled easily that's all it's about it's, it's oh, yeah. scary this goes back to your point we're talking about just people are being intellectually lazy you can legit know anything and everything you could ever want to know easier now than ever like you can go to libraries and check out books for basically free because it's paid through tax dollars you got youtube you don't honestly, unless you want to do something that needs college, absolutely. You could honestly just take YouTube and look at lectures and know everything that everyone else knows. So there's yep. no reason why you should not know everything that you could possibly want to know, which still amazes me because you know, when people go to vote, it still amazes me. This is like a Churchill quote where it's like, it's like the worst case for democracy is, is if you have a five minute conversation with the average voter. <laughs> and only after talking to average voters, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this really? Because they, they know like one or two issues, but then all the other issues, they're just voting by party lines. I'm like, no, please don't do that. Because then you're just, you're just going to let the politician do whatever they want. And that's kind of what the founders said. We, I, I always kind of like get a little, little pissed when I hear where we describe it as democracy, because it's really a republic. Yeah. And there's supposed to be obviously checks and balances. There's supposed to be, you know, the layers of representation. Uh, there's supposed to be all these different mechanisms. So it's not just mob rule yeah. because democracy at the end of the day, if you think about it, basically means if you get a majority of people to side with you, you can make anything legal. Yeah. So if a majority of people want to have slavery, you could have slavery. If yeah. a majority of people want to uh, take your stuff, then it's all of a sudden good because there's no constitutional rights. There's no, uh, there's no codified bill of rights. There's no checks and balances. It's all just majority rule and majorities don't mean it's moral. And that's yeah. why you go back through history and you say, okay, well, 150 years ago, the majority felt this way. It didn't mean it was the right thing to think. It just meant most of the people believed it. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem. But yes. And the other thing is like, you know, the Democrats, their whole strategy is 
they just need to, they just want to expand and expand the voter pool. But really, we shouldn't be just trying to get more and more people to vote. They're like, oh, let's lower it to 16. Let's lower it to 14. Oh, you don't need to be a citizen. You could be here for two minutes and all of a sudden you get to decide the, the, the direction of the country. No, you should have people who understand history, understand civics, who have a, who have a stake in the society uh, to vote. Instead, yeah. they're trying to do the opposite. They're trying to dilute the voting pool by just having as many people as they can vote, as many low information voters, and that's how they're hoping, you know, to to swing elections. That's been their electoral strategy for the last 20, 30 years, and we see it now. They're doing it with like the, the universal mail-in ballots. They're trying to do, you know, mass amnesty, and you know, most countries on earth, like we always play, like this is just an American thing. Most countries on earth, like if I wanted to immigrate to a country in Europe, I couldn't do it. It would take. I would probably have to be there for 10 years before I became a citizen. I'd probably have to know the language fluently. That's the same thing in Latin America. If I wanted to, if I wanted to immigrate to, let's say, I don't know, Costa Rica, yeah. they have a whole naturalization process that's, that's followed through. They don't tolerate that. But yeah. for some reason, when we, when we talk about these topics, it's only the U.S. that matters, but we never compare it to other countries because other countries have very similar views. But in the U.S., they paint it in one way that if you want to do it, you're racist. But it's like, oh, if other countries that are non-majority white they have the same exact policies, then what are you saying here? It's like, oh, only the U.S. has to have open borders, only the U.S. has to have, you know, a 14-year-old can vote or whatever it is. So it's just, it's just the way they play with these, with, with, the, with the polls, it's the way they play with like the voting rolls and all this stuff. It's all meant to dilute and it's all meant to corrupt, you know, these Republican institutions. So your point brings up two questions, two points I was thinking about. The first one, I forget where I heard this from. It might have been like a, some speech about you no know, Romans and everything like that when they first started but they kind of had a system where it's it's not necessarily it's not, it's not like a property tax or anything but just like minimum guidelines that you have to have to vote and the, the reason is because where do you think the politicians come from the politicians come from the the citizens so right. if we have if we have a low bar for citizens you can only imagine how low the bar is going to be for politicians and then you wonder why all why are most of the politicians suck because we it comes from the people we're not good yeah. enough yet Yep, it's true. And look, I mean, you know, throughout U.S. history, I mean, it used to be like that. I think it was before the 1840s. It was like you needed to own land to vote. Yeah. And the, the, the thinking was that if you own a piece of property, if you own a piece of land in a city, in a farm, whatever it is, you have a huge financial stake in what's going on in that community. Because if that community goes to hell, your value of your property is gone. Now you're bankrupt. So you that's how you get people to care. Yeah. Like, for example, people care the most about their own stuff. For example, if I owned a house, I'm going to treat that house and I'm going to take care of that house way more than say if I was renting or say if it was just, I was just living there, you know, rent free because yeah. it's mine. I own it. I care about it. It's the same thing kind of with this voting. If you have like real roots in that community, if you're tied to that community financially, if you have a stake in what's going to happen in not only a year, but in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, then you're going to vote, you know, for policies and people that are going to make sure that your future is secure. So it also plays into things like having families. I think they showed a chart once, it showed all these European leaders, none of them have kids. So if you don't have kids, what, what the hell, I mean, there's nothing really stopping you from not giving a crap about what's going to happen in 20, 25 years because you may be dead. Yeah. So, 
And look, you don't even have to look about kids. Look at your own self. Like psychologically, you consider your future self a different person. That's how we, that's why we procrastinate. So it's like, oh, you have an assignment to do. You have some work to do, but you're procrastinating. You're like, I could do it tomorrow because you're not thinking your tomorrow self is you and your tomorrow self is going to be like, crap, I have to like rush this. This is a real pain. I wish I did it yesterday. It's the same thing. If you don't have kids, you don't care about the future. If you don't have any stake in the community, you don't care if crime rises. You don't care if property values decrease. So not saying you necessarily necessarily have to be a property owner, but you need to have some kind of stake in the community. And it's the same thing. Like if I moved to a different state or something, there's usually like a residency requirement before you move because you can't just be a transient. You can't just be there for two seconds. And now all of a sudden you're voting to decide what happens in that community because you have no stake in it. You got no skin in the game. So that was kind of the concept. They kind of got rid of that. And then everything became about universal suffrage. Everything became about as many people voting as possible. And yes, it obviously should never be based on gender or race or stuff like that. But I think you can make an argument that says, hey, you're not paying taxes. If you're not a citizen, if uh, you, I don't know, like you're you're, you're a a multi-felon convict just out of prison. There, there are arguments to be made that says, well, should everyone really be voting? Because then these people are influencing, like you said, the politicians who are then influencing all of us. So it's an interesting concept that doesn't get talked about a lot. Obviously, you can't do the property, and I kind of right. agree with that. Well, I'm a renter, so that, that would mean I wouldn't vote. So I don't even necessarily agree with that because I think, you know, especially in a city like where I'm in, I'm in New York City, I rent. So I still have a stake because I'm living yeah. here. I'm just saying that's how they used to do it before. Oh, yeah. But it is interesting when you look at the maps. I think they did these maps recently. was like, uh, voters, if they're married with children, it would be like every state is red. Literally every state goes Republican. Uh, voters who own guns, every state is red. Voters who uh, own a business, every state's red. Voters who uh, own a house, every state's red. So it's like the, the, the Democrats see that and that's why they say, okay, we need to keep lowering the voting age. We need to keep you know, doing amnesty. And that's how they see their electoral future. You need to have something to, to make the voter so vested that they do the proper research. Yes. That's, that's the thing that pisses me off the most. Great. But you were talking about earlier, I was looking up, uh, you had a town hall, town hall article. I don't know how long ago it was, but it was basically the concept of how Oklahoma, how part of their state got like oh, yeah. next to Indian territory, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting because it kind of ties into uh, the DC statehood thing. What's your thoughts of if they, if they let's say they made DC a state, would you want to do something where we just chop up other states and make those new states? Yes. If, if they really, really want a D.C. state, then what our counter should be is like, okay, well, D.C. is like a 90% Democratic constituency. Personally, I think D.C. would be better off, not only for the residents of D.C., but for the country as a whole, if it was retroceded back to Maryland. Uh, because remember, it used to be a square yeah. And then uh, Virginia took everything over the river and then they just, and now it's kind of like a half square thing. If that was given back to Maryland and it was just a city in Maryland, it'd probably be better off and you get, its rep- you get all the federal representation through the Maryland senators, you get the representation through uh, the Maryland uh, H- House of Representatives delegation. That would be my preferred situation for that to happen, but I, they're probably going to try to push a DC statehood. If that's the case, then fine. You want a DC statehood? Okay, so now a Republican area in a either a blue state or a red state needs to split off so we keep the balance because it shouldn't just be a partisan uh, power grab because at that point it's really biased because there are huge swaths of the country that are part of a state like California that has 40 million people and it's it's not governable really as a state anymore because there's huge parts of California that are simply not represented because if you look at the maps like the county by county map 
most of California is red, and it's just these cities on the coast that dictate the entire state. That's what's going on in the country as a whole. That's why we have the electoral colleges. We have these things because you shouldn't just have the the areas, the cities that have concentrated populations yeah. decide policy for swaths of places that have dispersed populations. So if DC wants to be a state and they really want it to be, okay, then we're going to say let's split up Oklahoma to, into two states. So the balance in the Senate remains and the balance in the House of Representatives remain. You still get your local rule. You still get all the benefits of being a state, but you don't get to influence. Uh, the Congress in a partisan way. And, you know, honestly, same thing with Puerto Rico. If Puerto Rico really wants to be a state, sure, they're going to be a heavily democratic state. They could be a state, then split upstate New York off from downstate New York, because then upstate New York will be a solid Republican state, and we can continue that process. So the Congress stays balanced. And the good thing is, when you have smaller states, the more local the government, the better the government. So if you have government that's closer to the people, it's going to be much more representative. It's going to be much more efficient. It's going to be much more in tune with the needs of the people in those communities. So more states are always a good thing, but it shouldn't be done uh, purely to advance uh, one party over another. I think that's, that's fair. I think that, that's honestly better than the idea I had. Yeah, <laughs> because this is my idea, right? Now you tell me if this would sound dumb. This is what I was thinking, right? So I was thinking, okay, let's say you get D.C. statehood, right, and everything like that. I would vote, obviously, this is a headache logistically, but let's say we have, you know, the, the Fed. We have the Fed in D.C., right? What if we move the Fed or a whole lot of government, you know, buildings and agencies to more Republican states? Let's say we move the Fed to Alabama. We move the Treasury Department to North Dakota, something like that. I mean, if you want D.C. statehood, you can have it. Just the power of Washington will be dispersed throughout the whole country mm -hmm. instead of just being one concentrated place. There's some things about that I like. It's I'm not I'm not uh, against it. The only thing I'm worried about is that the reason D.C. is so say democratic is because all those government institutions are there and when you work for the government, you're tending to vote for more government because the bigger yes. the government, the more money you make. So if you take a lot of those things and spread them out, I like the fact that it obviously would make DC less relevant and it would, it would spread power around. But if you put them in, say, Republican states like Alabama, whatever, you're going to make those states a little more blue. So it's a trade-off. You get the benefit... You get the benefit of like spreading it, which I kind of like. And if you look in the U.S., the U.S. history, a lot of these states, like New York, for example, the capital is not New York City. It's Albany because they didn't want too much power concentrated in New York City. Yeah. And most uh, U.S. states, there's the most populous city and then there's the capital, like uh, Louisiana, most populous city, New Orleans, but the capital is Baton Rouge because they wanted to spread the power around. So I like it. Um, you just have to remember it comes at a cost because, um, you know, if you move the Fed or you move one of the departments or something, all the people that work there are going to move with it and they're all going to vote blue. So you're going to make some of those states more blue. So it has its pros, it has its cons, but oh, I'm not, I'm not against it. I, I kind of oh, like it. Thank you. You're the first person who said that idea wasn't trash. I appreciate that. I, I don't think it's that bad. I think, you know, the whole reason they built Washington DC was for that reason, because back yeah. then they didn't want to concentrate it in Philadelphia. They didn't want to concentrate it in New York. So they were like, well, let's build a new city. So it's kind of in the middle of the country. People have to go there. It's not like its own, you know, like, echo chamber yes. and it has no connection to any state so it can't be preferential the other so what the founders did kind of align with you yeah. and people have this and there have actually been proposals over the years to do what you've done where they wanted to spread parts of the government around they wanted to make dc less to focal point i think it's not a bad idea i just think if it's you have to do it strategically because depending on where you move the people you could flip a state from red yeah. to blue or vice versa uh i was watching 
this goes back to I didn't know you was you were you were Superman or Batman because you all over the place. I remember that. But I was watching uh, one of your speeches you gave at the uh, the New York Young Republican Club in 2019, yep. and you mentioned about how old liberal conservatism is gone. So I really I'm just curious about what do you where do you think the past conservatism was, and where do you see it going in the future now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know. I was never a fan of George Bush. I was never a fan of kind of like the country club Republicans yes. who were kind of elitist and didn't really relate to people. I think the future of the Republican Party, if you look at something like Donald Trump, how did Donald Trump win? Like no one wants to talk about this because it, it's an inconvenient truth. But Trump broke the blue wall, which were all these solid Democratic states in the Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Why did he break that blue wall? Because those states used to have large, or they still do, large working class populations that used to always vote Democrat. And what happened to those communities? All the jobs left because the Democrats sold them out. They sent the jobs overseas. They have been pushing a really cosmopolitan agenda. They haven't been representing working class people. And because of that, their wages have gone down. Their job opportunities have gone down. Those communities went from, you know, nice middle class towns. Now they're filled with drugs and opioids. And, uh, you know, they went from solid union de democratic strongholds. And now they're basically the new bastions of the Republican Party. So what's the future of the Republican Party? What's the future of conservatism? Conservatism, in my mind, needs to be pro-working class, which means you need to support labor. You need to support yeah. workers. You need to support the little guy. Yeah. And it also means that the corporations are not the good guys. If you look at the biggest corporations in the U.S., they're kind of like woke. They're very left wing. And yes, they want their tax cuts for them, but they also want to have all their jobs overseas. They want to do all their uh, overseas, you know, uh, offshoring. So they want to take away jobs from U.S. from American citizens. Uh, and they want to advance leftist causes because at the end of the day, they're more pro-business than they are pro-market. Um, so my vision of the Republican Party is populist. It's working class. Um, if you can make an alliance between, really, the only thing that's kept the Republican Party alive before the Trump was the religious right. You had the, the evangelicals, you had the, that. If you combine the social conservative religious right with working class populists in the Midwest, you'll win every election you get that strategy down to a science, you'll always win these states. So the future of the Republican Party is not like globalism. It's not just lower taxes. Lower taxes are good, but you have to have more than that. You can't just run on like this kind of like old mentality of just like lower taxes, free trade, blah, 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 blah. Because free trade is what kind of destroyed a huge chunk of the country. And yeah. if you look at it, how did this country used to pay its bills? We never used to have an income tax. We never used to have a corporate tax. We had tariffs. So domestically, we wouldn't pay any taxes. You wouldn't pay an income. You wouldn't pay a payroll tax. Your businesses wouldn't pay a tax. But foreign products that were trying to be imported in would be taxed. That was a good system because American citizens didn't have to pay anything. It incentivized people to build things here, to have jobs here. And it protected our industries from, say, foreign competition, so we're not beholden to China, whatever. They started to do away with that, and they started to replace the tariff with income taxes, which is taxing you know, us directly. And since they started to do that over the last hundred or so years, our purchasing power has declined, our wealth has declined, our jobs have left, we've become more dependent, we've become a credit-based society where we buy everything on credit cards because we're not making the kind of money we used to. And it's not about the nominal amount of money. If you look back on it, our parents, our grandparents, their purchasing power was way more than ours. Yeah. You could live off one income 
and you can support a family of six or seven. Now you need two incomes and you can't even have a kid. That's why birth rates are declining because all the jobs, maybe on paper they pay more, but all your expenses are just as much because of inflation. So all our quality of life is going down. And the whole concept of the American dream is that every generation we're supposed to make more money. We're supposed to do better than our parents. We're supposed to be able to have bigger families. We're supposed to have bigger houses. We're supposed to be able to do better. We're regressing because really uh, domestic inflation, domestic taxation, all the jobs, all the good quality jobs are going overseas. And the few jobs that are left, you need like three degrees to have. That's why there's always this degree inflation. Oh, it used to be you could just have an associate's degree. You could have an associate's degree. You can go out. You can work in a factory. You can make a really good middle-class income. You could have a really nice house, and you could have you know, a big family on one income. Then it's like, now you need a bachelor's degree. Okay, now you need a bachelor's degree. Now they're saying, no, 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 now you need a master's degree. And then next thing you know, you need a PhD. So you just keep going back to school. You keep getting into more debt. And then you get out and you're still working a crappy job and you still can't afford anything. And then you still got people like in our generation, you know, we got people who can't leave their hometown. They can't get out of the mom's basement. And then they become Bernie supporters. They become, you know, whatever, because I feel for them. They've been, they've been told their whole lives, just do this and everything will be right. They did everything they're supposed to do. They went to school, they got the degree and they can't get the job. And then they're still working at Starbucks or doing whatever. So we have a whole generation of people that are like lost children. It's a whole lost generation. We're the ones that even, even the ones that can make money, they don't have the lifestyle their parents had because their parents were having kids. The parents were having families in like their late twenties. We got people that are in their late thirties that still can't really support themselves beyond, you know, just themselves. So it's, this is all across the West too. It's not just the U S. So the future of conservatism to bring it back to your question is supporting the working class, supporting families, supporting uh, America first, kind of like a nationalist type of take that we're not a globalist. uh, We're not globalists. We're not supporting all the nations of the world. What makes the world great, what makes the world unique is we all have our own unique cultures, unique histories, unique national identities. Stop trying to just erase borders and just make us all the same. Let's focus on what makes us unique. Let's support ourselves. And it's through those competitions between nations that you become more successful. And you look at a place like Europe, Europe has historically been extremely wealthy because it used to be divided into hundreds of little countries that used to compete with each other like businesses. When you looked at Asia, Asia was made up of massive empires that didn't really have to compete. So if you lived under one emperor in Asia, he didn't care what the tax rate or what the policies were in the neighboring country because he controlled everything. In Europe, it was all these small little countries. They competed with each other. There was competition for technology. There was competition to make uh, your country better to live in. And because of that competition between countries, they were able to prosper. They were able to do better for themselves. Globalism is the opposite. If it's one world, if it's one country, if it's one sort of government, there is no competition anymore. You can't just move to go somewhere better. You can't just, uh, you can't flee, you're stuck. So that was a lot, but uh, I think I got it across. Thank you for listening to the Casual Journey Podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe.